on the record on news talk Good morning, this is Kieran Cudahy with you until one o'clock today with On The Record here on News Talk. If you want to contact the programme, you can send me a text, 53106, that will cost you 30 cent. Or as always, you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Cudahy with me in studio today, picking their way through the Sunday papers. Our Susan Mitchell, the health editor of the Sunday Business Post, Tom Malloy, Director of Public Affairs and Communications at Trinity College, and Alex White, Senior Counsel, former Government Minister and TD, now Labour Party Councillor. You're all very welcome. Thanks for coming in on the bank holiday weekend, the good Beautiful weather day. outside. Mm. I know I asked, I implored we could broadcast on the roof today like when you're in school and they let you go outside to do lessons apparently in the afternoon it was a, it was a no uh, all around uh, just to let people know what stories are on the front pages of the Sunday papers before we pick our way through anything inside the Sunday Independent leads with property tax to rise as price cut hits 1 million euro homes property tax is set to increase to next year with Dublin homeowners paying vastly more than those in rural areas and the disclosure comes amid an apparent slowdown in the asking price for luxury properties in Dublin valued at more than a million euro the Sunday Business Post secrets and lies this is to do with the illegal adoption scandal Joan Burton has an article inside they reference it on the front page I faced a 50 year wall of silence and resistance I will talk about Joan Burton's article a little bit later we'll also talk about uh, Susan Mitchell's own piece on page 12 and 13 abortion what needs to happen now also referenced on the front page the Sunday Times pro-life TDs seek disability clause in abortion bill independent and Fianna Fáil TDs say they will support moves by pro-life campaigners to insert a disability amendment into forthcoming uh, abortion legislation teachers take pay war to European courts this is two primary school teachers saying they've been discriminated against by the state when they were recruited on lower salary sales salary scales salary sales and there's a good story pregnant smoker tally puffed up this is the Lancet published figures that showed 38% of Irish women have a cigarette at some point during their pregnancy despite the fact that just 25% of uh, women in that age bracket uh, say they've ever ever would smoke a cigarette which has leads uh, some campaigners Dr Pat Dorley of Ash Ireland saying he thinks these figures are way off you'd have to think they are as well almost 40% I don't think almost 40% of women are smoking during pregnancy uh, the Irish Mail on Sunday sex change specialist warns of surgery regrets uh, Professor Donal O'Shea consultant endocrinologist when he previously worked in London um, for a, a hospital that specialised in this area is talking about um, helping transgender people making sure they have the right services and supports and counselling as they go through that process and the Sunday world Ryan's hit and miss tragic radio star Jerry's boy Rex marries new sweetheart full story on page two and three I don't think we will have time to get to that um Tom I want to start with you um because I think we have a an answer to that great existential question if a tree falls in Trinity College and no one is around to hear it does it make a noise well it does if a tree falls in Trinity College and there's enough uh, social media and uh, it, then it does make a noise. It makes six one news apparently. Um, but it was uh, just shows how many Trinity graduates I think populate the media. Mm. That's what it tells me. No, I think uh, I think to be <laughs> fair, it tells you something else. It tells you that Trinity is very much part of Dublin and part of Dubliners' hearts. And uh, you know who doesn't walk through Front Square from time to time? Just for, for listeners who don't know, a tree a tree fell in the middle of the night yesterday. A massive uh, maple in in Front Square and. Yeah, people are very sad. I was yeah. very sad. Yeah, look, it, it is a tree people will know well. And uh, it's featured in, uh, as you said, it's featured in the 6-1. It's in pictures of it in many of the papers. Yeah. Uh, today, you'll be out with your chainsaw for the rest of the, the bank holiday weekend. That's, that's my weekend. Plenty of firewood <laughs> in the Malloy household, <laughs> at least, uh, for the coming winter. Um, look, huge amount of coverage in the papers uh, of the, the fallout of last week's referendum. Um, and we might start, I mentioned 
Susan, your own piece about what happens next. And Simon Harris is going to be with us after 12 as well, answering some of the questions that you pose in that. And we'll get to that article in a few minutes. I might start with what's on the Post Plus section of the Sunday Business Post, because Stephen Kintz is writing about the fact that you've got this big, energised group of young voters now between this referendum and the, and the previous as well, the marriage equality referendum, and that uh, they have been energised, they are engaged, and the issues that are important to them now must become national issues. And Alex, he's talking really about economic issues and uh, the intergenerational wealth gap. Yeah, it's a great piece and um, identifies, as you say, all of the issues that really are of relevance to a young generation and poses the question, how will those how will those issues be addressed by that generation? And I think there is a disjunction between the between Leinster House, frankly, and the political party system of which I was a member and still am, and many of these preoccupations that young people have. Um, can the parties that we're familiar with, and mine is the oldest in the country, can they actually address these questions? Are they equipped to do so? I mean, many of us actually were surprised by the result, the scale of the result last weekend. And what does that say about us? You know, the fact is many people uh, outside the, the party political system were saying, you know, this was plain to see that it was going to be such an overwhelming uh, result, particularly in that generation. So uh, I think Stephen Kinn's posing a question that is that we all should debate, including those in political parties, established political parties. What is the relevance of the party political configuration? What is the relevance of the existing political parties to a young generation who, frankly, are, if they're not contemptuous of political parties, I think some are, they certainly don't really see their relevance. I mean, I've uh, not to bring a personal situation into it, but you know, my, my children are in their 20s, early and mid 20s. And, you know, they were very engaged and are very engaged in the world around them and in the challenges and the preoccupations that are going to face them and are facing them in, in this generation. But I think they've precious little uh, faith in the established political parties. I've tried to get them to join the Labour Party, all the rest of it. I'm sure people in other parties talk to people in that generation, too. So I think Stephen Kintz is identifying a really a very important question. Um, and like I'm saying, there's a question there. What's the answer? Um, you know, look at the party political configuration, raise the, look again at the issue of left versus right. What are the politics that we need for the future to deal with? challenges like climate change, the question of income stagnating incomes in particular for people in, 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 in the so- so-called millennial uh, generation. One of the points Stephen Kinsler makes in his piece that I heartily agree with is he says, join a union. I think he's so right about that. I think trade unions, again, we talk about relevance and people say, oh, trade unions are not relevant. They are highly relevant to people in, in all generations, particularly that generation, because in order to actually push up your income and push up your material circumstances, you need to join with other people. You can't do it on your own. And we have a big individualization sort of trend in our modern public discourse and everything that everything's about the individual and you know, even in terms of employment, and I'm an employment lawyer, it's what I do, we think of employment as individuals being employed. But in fact, it's a it's a collective question as well. You can only advance people's interests, whether they're journalists or whether they're people working in, 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 in you know, in a factory or in a retail outlet by coming together. And trade unions are critical to that. I mean, you know... I, like this is a little point for my own party that we work very closely with trade unions and even at the time of the of the crash we were able to protect trade unions and their ability to negotiate and actually advance trade unions from a legal point of view so that they can actually do the job they're there to do. Yeah, Rory Quinn or Rory Quinn should I say Pat Rabbit in his piece as well uh, today kind of towards the end of it touches mm. on a little bit of overlaps a little bit with Stephen Kinsler in terms of the future of the Labour Party mm. uh, is that internally what the Labour Party is look, look these are this, this is the I suppose the next generation of voters and we can see from 
you know these referenda and from exit polls and the other questions they're asked around it these are the issues too important and this is where we must be active definitely I mean the Labour Party you know we suffered a huge hammering in the election of 2016 and nobody realises that more than we do ourselves and we do it the party will regenerate I mean you know there were there have been times in our past from I mean I think we had two councillors or something in Dublin in the mid 1980s after an election that happened at that time we have a lot of thinking and we have been engaged in a lot of thinking and we have been putting forward ideas to try to bring people or face you know face these other questions face these big questions particularly around you know the material uh, circumstances and prospects for a new generation and we haven't like we haven't always been successful in that as a party I mean other parties can answer for themselves but I mean we, we have to be self-critical as well you know we've we're, we're not regarded by enough people as a, a good prospect and we have to change that uh, you know public presentation of the party and I think Brendan Howland and all of the the colleagues are very engaged in that but it's a, it's a big job of work you know it's a huge job of work particularly when you see on the left the fractured nature of the left I mean there's so many I mean we're still Okay, if you say left, Sinn Féin's left-wing party, there's some questions in people's minds as to whether it is or not. But let's just leave Sinn Féin has done well, and mm. no, no, uh, um, I'm not, I'm not, you know, criticising in that sense. But if you look at everybody else, we're still ahead of a, of of a very fractured band. You know, if we're five, six percent, you've got parties around three, around two, yeah. around one, and so on. This is crazy for the left. People who believe in a sensible, constructive left-wing politics should be coming together. You know, not 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 uh, not pulling each other apart. Uh, Susan, I think of my own kind of peer group who would have been very much engaged in the in the referendum and absolutely voted, and uh, they are that they're engaged in a general sense as well. But the prospect of a general election, I'm not sure would half of them vote. Some of you know, a lot of them would kind of roll their eyes, and partly it's I I don't know, but I I would think partly it's to do with just the kind of the voting on a on a local level on the PR system that you know what I mean what they what, what are the big issues nationally for them they don't see represented maybe on the page of councillors or local activists in front of them and they just don't get engaged so how does how, how do you cross that divide? How do you change that? Well Stephen Kinsler in his piece today he highlights I suppose three three main issues uh, going forward. One is the health system, which he said is in very, very obvious need of reform. The other is the housing system, which he says effectively sets out to indenture uh, younger people. And then the pension system, um, which he describes as charitable to call a time bomb. And they are all issues affecting the younger generation. And indeed, I suppose these were the people, this was the grassroots movement. They were the ones who drove uh, this referendum result much more so than the political system did. Uh, But I don't see the same level of interest or enthusiasm, certainly about, I, I write on health, I don't see younger people being as motivated or as enthusiastic about reform of the health service in the same way as they were about uh, the eighth referendum uh, or the eighth amendment, I should say. Now, will that change? Because will that change in the back of the recent result? People have seen, wow, we can actually deliver incredible change here if we get behind something. I don't know. Stephen is is optimistic. He believes that this might be the start of of a movement and that young people will become more involved in politics. I know that some parties are already snapping up individuals who are quite prominent um, in the campaign, in the Yes campaign. So maybe maybe this will deliver more progressive and I suppose more more interest from younger people in politics but I I don't know <laughs> Tom are you as optimistic as, as Stephen appears to be uh, uh, yes I am actually I think I think I think first of all this is a fantastic article it's fantastic because this has been going on for at least 10 years during the crisis the IMF and the OECD repeatedly said 
that the older generation was shafting the younger generation. You can see it everywhere. You can see it in the universal social charge. The idea that somebody who is over 65 pays 10% less tax than somebody who's working on the same salary, is, it's completely unjust. Uh, you can see it in free travel. Why do we give free travel to old people with pensions and not to children who have no income at all? It's, it's all lopsided. It's all around us. And what, what, what's happened to old, younger people is, has been absolutely terrible. Now, it happened to my generation. Uh, I'm 50. Um, and we never recovered. But this generation is different, I think. They're much stronger. And we can almost see it in, in the political system. The fact that the millennials have their own Taoiseach is very interesting. And I think... I think the, what happened last last week, the abortion referendum, I think it's it, it's 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 only the beginning of, of a much bigger reform that, that is coming, and they will begin to dismantle these inequities. I don't think, by the way, the trade unions are the answer. And we see that the trade unions shafted young people again in the public sector by forcing the government to give lower salaries to young people doing the same job as other people. They could have demanded pay cuts across the board. They chose not to. It was another example of the young being being treated terribly. So, no, I am optimistic. I think they're they're very powerful, and they've, unlike my generation, they've actually they tasted good times. They know what what they're entitled to, what they lost, and they're going to fight back and get it. And good luck to them. I, think uh, it's, it's very, I, I was going to say, yeah, I think as well we've seen you know younger people and indeed women become <laughs> much more politicised recently, and you even saw that last week with the cervical check. Uh, issue which has affected obviously so many women, so many families, people coming out uh, to protest at what has happened all across the country. So perhaps you're right, perhaps this is the start of something, you know, where, whereby people are going to make, take much more of an active role in society when issues do arise, whether or not that will be by joining political parties or by making their, their views felt on the ground or on the streets. I don't know. Alex, I want you to defend the unions there that, oh, you yeah. fe- that oh, they I feathered certainly. their own nests uh, when the crash well, came. In fairness to the unions, and, and this is self-critical for myself, it wasn't the unions that did that. Of course, it was the government uh, that introduced uh, differential levels of salaries in the public service. Um, and I suppose in defence of that, it was done so that people could have jobs because we couldn't have employed teachers at the time if there wasn't that lower rate. And that's uh, you know now being rectified. It's yeah, actually right, been rectified go- by the unions. It's the unions that are rectifying it now. Now, rather than anybody else, so I think the unions do well, some deserve. Some would say that was the, the, I suppose the unions, the 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 offer was essentially without being put on paper, uh, lower pay for everyone, or you can stay in the same pay and we'll just dock the well, pay, lower pay for new entrants. So essentially, pull up the ladder. It was lower pay for new entrants, and I remember when it came up in the, in the election. I don't remember many union trade unions that kind of banging the drum saying uh, this is unfair on the people who haven't joined our union yet. We should all take a pay cut so they can come in at the no, same well, level why as would, us. I mean, of course they wouldn't take a pay cut. I mean. Would you? Would I mean? Would others take a pay? I'm not I mean, I, I know. No, but I, sorry, I don't mean to. But look, I, I think it's a broader question. I think the trade unions are part of the solution. I must say, I disagree with Tom. I think they're part of the solution, absolutely, and they should be defended and they should be should have the legal basis to do the job they're supposed to do. And that that is a question of pushing up the incomes of their members and definitely equalising the income of their members. You're right. There is a question there. But can I make just a broader point about the intergenerational uh, divisions and how this plays out in our public discourse. So. 
if you take something like property tax, so you see in the papers today, there's various ish, uh, articles on people saying, well, property tax, can we reduce it? Can we change how it's levied and so on? I mean, property, property tax is very relevant to this discussion. People want to reduce or actually abolish in some cases, and there's some parties even on the so-called left want to abolish property tax. Property tax, in my view, and I'm not, you know, it, 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 is, it is an essential element of our, of our tax structure. I mean, that we should be levying property, which is a store of wealth. And frankly, it is a store of wealth of people of my generation who own houses, sometimes very expensive and very, you know, very valuable houses. A lot of them without any mortgage on them. I see well, 42% exactly. of homes in but Ireland. The point I, exactly. But the point I'm trying to make is some people, not around this table, some people will say, oh, the big intergenerational thing, we have to do something. But then when comes, something like property tax comes along, which is an obvious instrument in terms of re-equalising a situation. So if you raise levy taxes from property, you have them available to do good things in the health service and in childcare and all of the issues, all of the areas that we want to improve for the rising generations. The trouble in Ireland is we sometimes we have great aspirations for dealing with things or we think there should be more equality. But once you bring forward a proposal that might actually it might actually introduce that equality in real terms, people go, oh, no, I don't want to pay more property tax. Now, here's a politician talking about putting up taxes, which is, I mean, I lost my seat. And actually, one of the reasons why I lost my seat was the property tax. I represent a constituency, Dublin Ratdown, which is, you know, an area where the pro- people feel in some, you know, who feel that it's it's an unjust burden on Dublin and on the on, on, and on sort of the uh, uh, suburban par- areas of Dublin. But we have to levy the taxes that we need to have the services that we want to have, particularly health and education and childcare. And we can't. We can only, you know, we. we there isn't, there isn't some other group somewhere that we don't know about that we can levy taxes from. I know the corporate sector, there's an issue in relation to corporate taxation. And there's an argument that, that 12.5% is, you know, that that should mm. be increased and so on. Most parties think it should be kept where it is. But, you know, people need to translate their aspirations about equality into actually doing things about it. And that's where the problem tends to come in the political system, that everybody wants to do right and do good things. But when you come in with a proposal, people balk. Because they don't actually face it at election time. Yeah, and there's an election possibly around the corner and there's going to be budgetary concerns as well around that and about how the budget is administered. And we'll come back to that maybe mm. a, a little bit later. To come back to the issue of, of the referendum specifically, Susan, and on your piece today, you might just explain to people, I suppose, that the, the general point in it, this is what, what happens, what needs to happen next? Sure, so... Obviously, that the plan that the, the government's uh, the scheme that they have outlined um, is a scheme in which abortion or termination of pregnancy would be available uh, without restriction, effectively up until twelve weeks of pregnancy. They want this to be doctor-led, so in the main, that this would happen in the community. And we see in other countries, for example, in Scotland and in England, that the vast majority of terminations take place at a very early stage in pregnancy and their medical termination. So this is where um, women take t- two pills, as it happens, um, about 24 hours apart. And this is something that could certainly be provided by GPs um, across the country, those who are willing and and able and, and in a position to, to do this. Obviously, some will have a conscientious objection, um, but they will simply have to refer on to, to other GP practices. The difficulty, I think, lies um, because we it, abortion will remain illegal with the exception of very strict circumstances after 12 weeks. Doctors who I've spoken to have said that, you know, in order to date a pregnancy, 
perfectly or, 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 or as well as you possibly can, you need to do an ultrasound scan. So there's been a lot of questions around, are we going to need to provide an ultrasound for every pregnant w- woman um, or, or every woman who, who um, decides to terminate, terminate a pregnancy? But the obstetricians who've I've, who I have spoken with have said, look, really, that is not going to be necessary um, at the very, very early stages. So in other words, up to nine weeks in a pregnancy, this really isn't something that's going to be needed. Perhaps afterwards, it might be necessary just to ensure because they said, you know, women can get confused about their dates. It's not always feasible or doctors can't be absolutely certain. So just to, to make sure that they're within the, the, the 12 week timeline. And mm. um, so so in other words, between nine and 12 weeks is where they seem to be going and what what, what they see. They seem to be deciding, yes, a, a scan might be necessary at that point. The difficulty, I suppose, Kieran, is that there are huge um, difficulties in accessing ultrasounds across the country right now. So, for example, at the moment, lots of women don't even get an anomaly scan later in a pregnancy. Mem- many women never get an ultrasound scan throughout a pregnancy. So there is going to be a need to build up resources there to facilitate this. Then I suppose they also have to examine this issue of referral pathways between GPs and the hospital system. Mm. So the obstetric units, we have about 19, I I think it's 19 obstetric units around the country. A proportion of women who do take, um, who who, who do have a medical abortion will have complications. They're pretty rare and most of them are are fairly minor, but they will need follow up in a hospital. So there's going to be a very, very a need for clear pathways into a hospital and into units. And we also have to work out things like, uh, for example, the remuneration for for GPs who are going to be providing this service. This is obviously a toxic area right now because GPs feel as if they have, and rightly so, they have been absolutely hammered by cuts under FEMPI, Financial Emergency Measures in the Public Interest. We have huge waiting lists now emerging to access GP practices. Some patients can't even find a GP when they move to, you know, in areas like Navan and up in the northeast. Families simply can't sign on to a GP practice. So there's a real resource uh, issue there. And then I, I wrote, wrote today um, about a I suppose a, a, one of the more difficult issues is this issue of fatal fetal anomalies. And I think this was something these stories, you know, these are tragic stories that really um, affected people profoundly who heard them through the recent uh, referendum campaign. And at the moment, um, when parents make the very difficult decision to terminate a pregnancy in these circumstances, most of the time in other countries such as France and England, um, the doctors carry out foeticide in advance of the termination um, so that the, the baby is is not born alive. And it's just considered a more often a more compassionate um, and kind thing to do. Parents have a choice. Some decide that they would like, you know, their baby to to, to be born alive and to have those few hours or days mm. w- with the child. But that should be their choice. And so doctors are saying this is something that we're going to need to grapple with because we have made the under the existing proposals, um, babies will have to be delivered from the point of viability. So in other words, at 23 or 24 weeks, those those babies will have to be delivered. So obstetricians um, are saying, and these are the obstetricians who are representing the Institute um, in, in talks with, with Simon Harris. And, um, yeah. you know, they're saying, look, this is something that we're going to need to decide. Are we definitely going to rule this out? Um, and if we are, then that's fine. That's understandable. You know, that that's one. But we need to, they're, they're nervous about, say, potential legal actions. And then I think a new, I suppose, 
issue that's been thrown into the the, 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 the <laughs> debate today enough. as if there weren't enough <laughs> problems and difficulties of this the Sunday Times is reporting that um, some TDs are going to look to have a disability amendment tabled which is where for example people will not be allowed to terminate pregnancies that um, where the the fetus is found to have Down syndrome. This has been a major issue in the States. In fact, only yesterday I was reading a piece in Slate um, that was saying that uh, Down syndrome was redefining the abortion debate in the United States because some states have actually legislated for this. So they have uh, told, you know, if you get a diagnosis of Down syndrome, you are not allowed to terminate your pregnancy. I don't know how they would do that here. And I, I just can't see the government even contemplating it. Yeah, look, that the huge amount of issues there. And we're going to get back to some of them uh, after the break. But Alex, I just want to very briefly just ask you about that, about that story on the front page of the Sunday Times, the politics of it. Uh, Mary Butler, one of the Fianna Fáil TDs quoted in that, she was in here with me on the Saturday, the day of the count. And she kind of mentioned that, that we'd look for amendments. And, and I asked her, if you didn't get the amendments, though, will you oppose the legislation? And she said no. She said, look, we, you know, such is the scale of the vote uh, that we won't do it. How sticky if a wicket might even this become? Even just listening there to Susan over the short three or four minutes that she outlined the complexity, this mm. is going to be a really, really complex process. I'm really thrilled that the Eighth Amendment, you know, that the referendum succeeded because it puts back into the Parliament and people like Matty McGrath uh, and Mary Butler will have to wrestle with these questions now. And I think that it's far, far too early for them to imagine that what somebody describes as, quote, a simple amendment, unquote, if there was, as if there was ever such a thing in this area in particular, uh, could, could, could be advanced at this stage. I think that this is going to take, and I'm sorry to say this, much longer than people believe. The legislative element of it is going to take a long time. It took us weeks and weeks to do a very simple piece of legislation and it and genuinely was simple in relation to the X case because it was so confined. Yeah. We 50 or 60 versions of that before we could get it get it done. This is horrendously uh, uh, um, uh, complex. It's a very important question. It will take a long time. That's just the legislation. Then there's the issues of the codes of practice with the with the professional bodies and so on. So I think it's far too early to say, but at least the politicians now don't have the cover of the Eighth Amendment for inaction. They all, all right. have to get down and read it and understand it. Susan Mitchell, Tom Malloy, Alex White staying with me more after this break. On the record. On, the record. on News Talk. Yes, this is News Talks. This is On The Record. Kieran Cuddy with you until one o'clock. Susan Mitchell, health editor of the Sunday Business Post, is with me in studio, as well as Tom Malloy, former business editor of The Independent, uh, the Irish Independent, and now director of public affairs and communications at Trinity College. Alex White, senior counsel, former government minister, TD, now Labour Party councillor, of course, as well. Uh, we were talking about um, what needs to happen next in terms of, of abortion and legislation. And, and Susan, you were running through your piece that's um, on page 12 and 13, over two pages, a really comprehensive piece in the Sunday Business mm-hmm. Post today. But some of the issues that you brought up there, uh, we were chatting during the break about um, GPs and this GP-led service and, and I, either the Medical Independence or the Medical Times, someone's doing a survey at the moment and when you vote on it, it reveals how, what way the voting is going. And I think, speaking to a GP yesterday, they said something like 70% of GPs who had responded to this survey said they wouldn't uh, comply with, with with the legislation. Now, Let's be honest, they're not 70% of them aren't conscientious objectors. This is a a tactical no that they're voting because they essentially want Simon Harris to come in and say, this is what we want. And they'll say, well, hold on, there's Fempy here. Let's deal with that as well. Yeah, so I think it's it's probably partly fuelled by their frustration at the failure of the government 
to address the contract that they have at present. And, you know, there have been repeated promises from from governments to address this, to provide a new all encompassing GP contract. The existing one is completely outdated. It's not fit for purpose and really like proper talks the the minister might differ with me in this, I I sense. But, you know, really serious discussions have yet to take place. There has been no enthusiasm from government to address this issue. So that's that's partly fueling, I think, GP's uh, position. Uh, but but obviously there will be some GPs who, who will have a conscientious yeah. objection. But if you consider, and we were discussing the numbers there earlier, an estimated 5,000 women uh, terminated their pregnancy in 2016. That's not a huge... In terms of we have about, I think it's 2,500 GPs across the country. So even if 500 were providing this service. Some of these terminations will, will have to take place for various various reasons in in obstetric units or in hospitals, but most of them will be medical abortions. And so you don't need every GP in the country to be on board to be able to provide this service. Um, but I, I think as well, you know, not all women will want to go to their own GP for this, you know, especially, for example, if your GP is somebody who has been out campaigning for the no side, you might feel this isn't the person who I want to go Mm. to. I I will be more comfortable going to another service provided elsewhere. So, you know, I I don't think that the issue with with GPs or doctors in the community is going to be insurmountable. Yeah, Tom, they'll have to kind of walk a fine line as well, because the government can spin as much as they can as well. And if, if it's seen that they're holding up everything over money, essentially, because that's what Fempi comes down to. And if they might have very legitimate uh, issues about about Fempi and the legacy of, of some cuts over others. Uh, but the last thing they want to be seen is to be the villains in this. Yeah, but I imagine the government don't really want to be seen to be forcing anyone to, to perform these kind of procedures either. I, I don't know enough about it. The one thing that does strike me, though, is that one of the interesting things about this referendum was it, it, it wasn't captured by any interest group. It wasn't captured by doctors. They had their say, but we didn't listen to them too much. It wasn't captured by legal people. It was it was captured by ordinary citizens, and it came out of that citizens' convention. And I hope that continues. And I think the government should think about kind of forming a group of people, people like Susan, actually, who, who are interested, uh, informed observers, and, and, and continue listening, because we, we just have to make sure that this doesn't become the plaything of GPs and doesn't become the plaything of, you know, all kinds of interest groups. It's been it's been really refreshing that way. Uh, Alex, you're former Minister for State Responsibility mm. for, for Primary Care. Um, like, and, and as Susan said, look, they do have kind of legitimate concerns about the legacy of cuts that were made and, and that there should be a rollback on this. Uh, how I asked, would the, the politics of this be a sticky wicket? Will, it, will the kind of the negotiations with GPs on this? Or do you think, look, once it actually gets going, once it speak, talks with the ICGP and the, the College of Obstetrics actually get going, they realise, look, this isn't actually rocket science in terms of the, 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 the mm. implementation at primary care level? I think there'll be an element of goodwill. And I think I agree yeah. with Tom, actually. I think, you know, and in fact with Susan, I, I, I think that once the legislation is in place or, or looks, you know, starts to sh- take shape and get through the houses, they'll presumably also have parallel discussions with the GPs and with the, obs- you know, with the various colleges, medical colleges, and they'll, they'll come up with solutions to these questions, I think. And I think that the medical profession will take, a, a, you know, a reasonable, sensible approach to it. I mean, people have to be paid for the work that they do. And there are, you know, th- there are grievances which are mm. there uh, for it, particularly in relation to Fempi and so on, which I think should be addressed and probably will be addressed. So, um, 
you know, I don't think anybody is saying they're going to hold one thing quid pro quo for another. In fairness to the doctors, I haven't actually heard them saying yeah. that. But it is part of the background music to it. But generally, I've found dealing with doctors, you know, get into a room. I mean, I, I actually, you know, was involved in the negotiation of a new contract, introduced a new contract, upset them a bit because I published the contract rather before, you know, not before they saw it, but at the same time as they saw it. There are various different things have happened in the past where there's been conflict, but generally the IMO in particular, they, you know, they come in, they sit down, they're serious people. They'll work out a solution to these issues, I think. And I think as well, it's, it's important to remember that a lot of doctors um, campaigned actively throughout this uh, referendum, um, you know, campaign and and were and are hugely supportive of, you know, the legalisation of and the provision of abortion services in Ireland. In actual fact, I think that it, it wasn't done or they didn't look at it in any of the exit in, in the exit polls that, that I examined or that I had a look at. But I think that probably the the intervention and the active active campaigning by groups such as the Institute of Obstetricians mm. and the number of doctors who came out vocally saying this service needs to change had a big impact on on undecideds tour in the mm. in the latter part of this campaign so there are many doctors out there and GPs as well who do want to provide this service but obviously as you said I I haven't seen that particular survey but if 70% are saying that they aren't uh, we, we, you know there are clearly many who need to be meet, need to be persuaded or uh, yeah, uh, look, uh, th- this is an issue that I- I'm sure we- we'll be coming back to. We absolutely will. And Simon Harris, as I said, is going to be here in studio after 12 o'clock answering some of the questions I'm sure that uh, Susan has posed. Maybe not all. Can't guarantee you'll be happy with the answers either. But anyway, <laughs> we'll try. Uh, that is after uh, 12 o'clock here on the show. But I want to turn our attention now uh, to another story that has dominated uh, the latter half of this week uh, and the papers as well today. It gets plenty of coverage and it's the adoption scandal. And um Alex, I might start with you because uh, she's your party colleague, and Joan Burton's story um, is actually there's a, there's a she, it's an amazing story in a way, and I know she spoke about different aspects of it before, but the story about her passport and finding a passport for her as an infant is remarkable. You might it uh, is it's an extraordinary and it's extremely well told in the piece that Joan has in the Sunday Business Post today. Just the years, decades, you know, of trying to just uh, uh, secure the most basic information about your own identity um, and it, it, you know I mean that's really what it is that, that so, many, so many of us take for granted as to who we are and where we came from and uh, you know, as you say just a really really eloquent piece and a kind of a I suppose a cry from the heart really in, in many ways that is, represents the dilemma that too many other people have also faced over all of those long years and the, uh, the question really is now can the state and will the state uh, and the government and the Oireachtas be able to bring in legislation that's been around now for th- three, four years. Mm. It was certainly around when I was in government that will actually you know, put in place a regime where people can obtain information and can actually be reassured that they can get the maximum amount of information about their own their own identity. Now, it does conflict with, you know, we might as well be clear. I mean, it does conflict with other rights. And this has been the dilemma in this legislation. And I, I'm only just setting this out yeah. as to what the other side is. And it's been said that people, you know, there is a privacy right attaching to someone who doesn't want to be identified or who doesn't want to be contacted by 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 a person that they gave up for adoption so many years ago. You can have your own views as to whether you think that's fair. 
but it's 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 a real part of the dilemma here in terms of legislating. Can you and should you require somebody to agree to be contacted in these circumstances? And there are many people, perhaps some listening to this program, who gave up a, a baby for adoption many many decades ago, and for whatever reason don't wish to be contacted and don't wish. To, 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 you know, to be identified. Again, I don't express a, a view about yeah. whether that's valid or not, but it's, it's, part of the, it's, it's part of the difficult picture here, you know. But Joan's piece, as I say, and there were others as well around this weekend, just, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the human experience of it, um, you, the whole notion of being handed over, you know, being handed over shortly after your birth to, 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 um, by the nuns or to the nuns. Mm. And, you know, we've seen some of these stories in the recent recent days and perhaps they're not new but they're still uh, just as heartbreaking to read them again where basically amount almost to abduction I mean yeah. people are just handed babies handed over uh, um, re-registered or wrongly registered in in, 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 in others names um, these are really you know it's, it's a reflection on the kind of society and so many pe- people would have been you, you know, we're, we're, we're aware of this, we, we think. Politicians yeah. appear to have been aware of it. Individual churchmen were aware of it, actually complicit in it in some cases. It's a terrible episode in our history. Yeah. That, Tom, Brent, Brendan O'Connor is an interesting piece as well, I suppose, where he's saying, you know, be, beware of being too pious of this. Everyone back then as well thought they were equally pious and they were doing the right thing. Actually, I think Brendan O'Connor's piece is, is superb. He talks about kind of... Um, I forget what the terminology is, virtue Virtue signaling. signaling. You know, the idea that people are jumping on this bandwagon to basically basically escape the present and talk about the past. It's very comfortable. We've all done it. You know, it's so easy to bash nuns from 60 years ago, 50 years ago, and and, and avoid all the kind of issues that are going on around us. And I I think that's what I took Brendan to be saying, and I agree with him. I I must say I struggle with this story a little bit. I I can't understand... (sighs) why it's not more nuanced. I mean, it's, as Alex says, you know, there's there are big questions about the way whether the state can just phone people up and say, hey, do you know, you're not you're not who you think you are. And then there's, <laughs> there's a, another question, which is, we all know that 40, 50 years ago, children didn't have rights. That's why in this country, every child was, you know, had the living daylights beaten out of them in school uh, by, by their teachers. It's, you know, life changes. This was a long time ago now. And I think... <laughs> I don't actually understand why we're so surprised. This happened in almost every European country. The British were exporting kids to Australia when just burning their birth sets. You know, in countries like Sweden and Germany, the same thing was happening. This was part and parcel of life back then. So I, I, I think this is very different to... Is it as widespread, Tom, as it appears to have been here? Well, I don't know how widespread it was here. I think I, you in know, Australia, I, yes. But, but you know, we children were, were basically being sold by, by British orphanages to Australian families. Uh, you know, after the war in Germany, it was just just chaos. Uh, in countries like Sweden, all kinds of uh, strange adoptions were being forced by the state. So this is this is just it seems to me one of those situations where it's 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 a cultural story about the way we regard children, rather as some kind of unique Irish story. I mean, clearly the Catholic Church once again didn't cover itself in glory, but nor did many other. Um, state organisations elsewhere. Susan, on that nuance, like Brendan O'Connor makes a point and Tom kind of touched on it there as well, this idea that the state could just ring up anyone and you could have, the example I think Brendan gives is you could have, maybe the adoptive parents are still alive, maybe in their 90s, elderly infirm, and you ring up their child in their 60s or something and say, by the way, you were adopted and it kind of throws the, the, their lives all into chaos. Um, 
the alternative, and you can see, you can understand where he's coming from. And then I was reminded by someone else outside when I was talking about this uh, about um, cervical check, and they made a link, and they said, "Well, the alternative is that some civil servant is sitting somewhere, and they kind of look at the situation. They think I have this information about this family, but you know what? I'll decide. It's in their interest that I don't tell them." It, it, again, I'm not saying there's a right. I don't I know where the answer is, but it's the, the complication. The, well, it's this issue of of non-disclosure, isn't it? Um, of, of of withholding information. But uh, you know, a, a little bit like what Alex said. I don't know how you balance the right to privacy versus the right to know, you know, about your identity. Personally, I think the latter trumps the former. But you know, I'm not involved in this. I'm not directly affected, um, but by what has happened here. But what I don't understand is why we seem to have such difficulties. I understand the legislation is complicated, but this tracing tracing bill um, has been stalled in the Doyle and there doesn't you don't really seem to get a sense of urgency around it. And even I, I can't remember, Tom, I think you mentioned none of this is none of this is actually new. You know, as far back as 2010, Conal O'Fahertha in the Irish Examiner has been reporting about St. Patrick's Guild. Um, but there was no there seemed to have been no real official officialdom didn't really try to prioritise it. It's taken eight years now for some figures to emerge. Um, today, my, my colleague Mary Regan has a piece um, outlining how another institution that, you know, that the scan effectively this is widening. You know, the sense that you get is that this is the figure of 126, it's been reported, is literally just the start and that we're going to see many, many more how they will address it, I, I do not know. But I think that politicians really need to start and to start prioritising the legislation that has been stalled for so long. Well, I think just from having experience of government, what tends to happen is when legislation is stuck, there's an implication sometimes, not from what Susan said, but an implication is though of just inaction and people not caring. What tends to happen is when there's a disagreement about how to deal with a problem, it goes back then to the drafters or it goes back to the department or it goes back to, mm. to the various interests involved. And just, you know, literally people are, it's not that they don't care, I think, very often. It's just that when there's a disagreement as to how to resolve a problem, nothing gets gets done because there's a, there's there's a sense in which you can't move it on until you resolve. I mean, the issue about somebody's right not to be contacted, if you think there is such a right, I think they have a resolution for that, if my memory serves me right, which is a kind of an opt in. So therefore, you the person, the adopted person would have the right to certain information and the details on paper and so forth. But the the um, birth mother now I hope I'm recollecting this yeah. correctly. Would would be invited to to opt in rather than yeah. otherwise. So therefore, that person consent, and then the adopted person would have to give an undertaking not to contact the birth mother should that mother have decided that she didn't wish to be. I think that was but that's the resolution. I but it's it's, it's, it's not accepted. It's not it's not yeah. fully accepted thing by by the adoption uh, organisations, and they've been doing brilliant work on this. But that doesn't address the current or, or, or the issue that is front and central at the moment, because it's 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 very likely that many of these individuals who who are now adults yeah. may not know that they have been adopted. Oh, exactly. So yeah. they don't yeah. know. That's exactly. Who they, they don't even know that they know? don't know something about yeah. themselves. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Unknown, yeah. unknown. Which is which is really really difficult because then you're into a very disruptive issue in respect of somebody. Let's just think about it ourselves. If we were in, uh, approached or told by officialdom yeah. that we weren't who we thought we were. How disruptive that would be, not just for us personally, but for our families, communities and so on. Uh, we have to take a quick break. Uh, Susan Mitchell, Tom Malloy, Alex White are going nowhere. Stay with us. On the record. On, the record. On News Talk. 
Uh, Kieran Cuddy here, sorry, you picked us up mid-conversation there. We're going back to repeal and abortion and, and how the whole system might work. Simon Harrison with us on ten, in about 10 minutes' time uh, to chat about that and more. Susan Mitchell, Tom Malloy and Alex White are still with me in studio. We're turning our attention now, though, to uh, the economy and, and trade wars and economic clouds looming. Uh, Brendan O'Connor's writing about this as well on the front page of the Sindo. High pressure rising slowly. Dan O'Brien, page 23 of the same paper. Italy, Trump and Brexit mean the perfect storm is brewing. Uh, the Sunday Times editorial don't bank on budget fireworks under global economic clouds and the Business Post as well their editorial time for economy to lean against the wind Mm -hmm. Uh, Tom the uh, economic clouds they are kind of gathering um, the flying in the face of all our growth forecasts here of course it makes it very difficult does it for a Minister for Finance to manage expectations when growth figures are so positive yet the mood music is so negative from outside. It, it certainly makes it difficult, but that's almost the job description of an Irish Minister of Finance, isn't mm. it? You know, we, we, I think the public understand that we are a small open economy and therefore, ipso facto, we are d- very, very vulnerable to what happens abroad. The central bank said it very well this week in nice, clear English that, you know, the biggest threat to this country is something external. Y- you know, you only have to look around and see what's happening in almost every country in Europe at the moment. One unstable government after another. You just have to look across the water to the US. You know, it's it's obvious. Actually, the most interesting story this week was a story on Reuters saying that uh, the Swedish government had sent a booklet to every household in the country telling them to prepare for war and talking about, you know, talking about war in very open terms, talking about what the Russians might do, but also what a terrorist attack might do, saying things like, if you see on social media that we've surrendered, it's a lie. We won't surrender. We will fight to the end. So this is how our Nordic colleagues are you know, responding to, to the situation. In Norway, the, the Home Guard has been revamped for the same kind of reasons. Th- th- there are tons of reasons to be, to be concerned right now. And it's very interesting that all three of our newspapers today have an editorial you know, on the same mm. topic. And they're all calling for prudence. So it's difficult being the Minister of Finance. But, but you know, for once, I think uh, the public public are kind of behind him and are, are worried. Uh, when you told the story about uh, our Nordic neighbours, I'm reminded of a, a story from the 90s, a Green Party proposal, I think, in Denmark, where they wanted to abolish all military spending and instead leave a tape recorder at all ports and airports saying, we surrender. <laughs> they said that was, a, that was the, how le- unlikely it was, they thought back then, that anything would happen in mainland mm. Europe uh, to cause a threat. Uh, Alex, it's difficult, I suppose, isn't it, to, to be the prudence party with a, an election hanging around the corner? Like if Labour, in strategy meetings now, thinking about, you know, how do we make ourselves relevant? How do we increase our vote share? You know, suggesting that we don't spend any money is hardly going to do it. Well, I'll tell you what one thing is, seems to me to be absolutely critical is that we need to abandon this fiction that we can have tax cuts in the next budget or in the, the budgets that are coming up, whilst at the same time fund public services, replace the lost years of investment that we need in our infrastructure in this country, particularly digital infrastructure, address the challenges of climate change. And that's to say nothing about the new issues that we're talking about now in terms of trade, Im- the trade impending trade wars, the Brexit threat, all of these external threats that Tom mentioned, which are absolutely true when you superimpose them on an already difficult situation for the health services where it needs investment and needs money in order to run the service, education, childcare, all of these things we've been talking about. And we still have this fiction, and I call it a fiction, that you can actually properly deal with those questions and still have tax cuts. So uh, the political question for me is that we should abandon this talk about tax cuts. 
sorry voters that I yes. might be coming to listing here <laughs> sometime in the future we can't have tax cuts if we want to have public services and if we want to defend ourselves and our public finances against the external threats that exist that's a political question uh, Susan it's fine in abstract terms and in editorials in the paper I suppose to talk about prudence but if you're Pascal Dunhill and Simon Harris knocks on your door in, in the lead up to the budget and says look here's the current waiting lists here's the trolley numbers here's the number of GPs who are over the age of 15 or due to retire in the next few years here's how much money I need to deal with those sending them away packing with, without anything is really a, is a, a non-starter There are certainly things that do need additional resources in the health service but equally when you look at what we spend on health it is colossal um, you know and, and perhaps we as a society want to continue to spend what I, what I really mean is that we're spending we're now the third highest per capita spender on health in the EU and yet our access is one of the worst. So there is a problem with how we are spending our money in health that I think I, I would actually rather see that tackled and the government and indeed the health service get to the bottom of that than necessarily, you know, call for more money to be pumped in. There are, of course, things that need to be addressed. We, we, we spoke about the GP contract earlier that will require more money. There is a need for more capital spending in health. And actually, the government, to be fair, has made an, you know, a number of announcements around that. But we have to also be able to to be honest with ourselves and say, how is it that we are the third highest spender now in the EU and yet our access is one of the one of the worst? Look, unfortunately, we were after running out of time. Susan Mitchell, the health editor of the Sunday Business Post, Alex White, senior counsel, former government minister and TD, now Labour Party councillor, and Tom Malloy, the director of public affairs at and communications at Trinity College. He's at Thomas P Malloy on Twitter. If anyone's looking for firewood, he's going to be heading over to Trinity now with a chainsaw <laughs> to chop up that tree and plant a new one. I suppose. Thank you all very much for coming in. Simon Harris is going to be with us in a few minutes' time. On the record. On, the record. On news talk.